millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Monday morning, the 12th of December. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The plan was to downgrade Our Lady's Hospital in Navan further from today onwards with ambulances taking critically ill patients to Drogheda instead of to Navan. That plan has changed and now it's planned for ambulances to take critically ill patients to Drogheda instead of Navan, but not until Wednesday instead of today. What the difference between the two protocols is, is unclear, but government says the HSE and the National Ambulance Service was about to do something different than the government understood was planned. Now, that's despite the protocol being signed off by the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, two weeks ago. So, did the Minister sign off on something that he didn't understand, or did he read what he was being asked to approve, or was he misled by the HSE and the National Ambulance Service? This was a very critical question indeed, a question that was so important on Friday that it urgently needed to be answered on Friday. This is what Thomas Byrne, uh, Minister of State, Fianna Fáil TD, uh, in Mead East, had to say about the urgency of the situation on Friday's programme. Absolutely, there's a lot yeah. to be, has to be clarified, and the HSE have to clarify that. That's why the Minister had asked them as a matter of urgency this morning to sort this out and okay. do what was agreed, okay. which is people who are critically or seriously unwell or likely to deteriorate okay. wouldn't go to Navan, they would go to Our Lady of Lourdes instead. Okay. And also, in terms of the investment point, Michael, oh, that, the beds, that the beds that are required, which is a minimum of extra five beds in the Lourdes and 20 beds in Navan, would be available to facilitate this. No. Right, that's uh, Thomas Byrne speaking on Friday. It was a critical question and it needed to be answered as a matter of urgency. Uh, we haven't heard anything since. Minister Byrne is not available to speak to us on the programme this morning. Let's speak uh, to local Sinn Féin TD, Darren O'Rourke, who is on the line. And uh, a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, do you care to hazard a guess at to what has happened here? Uh, I don't know if there's any more options than the three I've laid out, but it would seem it has to be one or other of them that the 
minister didn't understand what he, he was authorising or he didn't read what he, he was uh, being asked to sign off on or he was misled? Well, I think it, it would only be speculation from me, Michael, but actually uh, what we can say, and one thing common to each of those three options, is that the minister and the government are not in control here. They're not doing what they're elected to do, which is control and deliver a health service that's fit for the people of this region. And it's very clear that there's absolute chaos within the system. Um, And I don't know um, what is going on behind the scenes, um, what's scrambling. We know, I, I, I expect that there's, you know, like there's clinical considerations in relation to this. There are also political with a big P and a small P considerations in relation to this. The nature of any big institution with with powerful actors and senior consultants and all of that and senior managers. Uh, But ultimately, the responsibility for the delivery of the health service lies with the Minister for Health and he and his government are completely at sea in relation to this. They're, they're pointing to we, the HSE are introducing a protocol on Monday, now it's Wednesday. What's in that protocol? Who knows how it's going to be introduced? Who knows? And at a time when there's uh, huge challenges at Drogheda A&E and in the hospital overall, and a huge need in, in Navan for uh, uh, supports and additional services for people. So it's an abject failure, in my opinion. I cannot put it any clearer than that. It's an abject failure on behalf of the minister. I don't know whether he'll be in the position this time next week. Uh, who's to know? Government are to know. Um, but I have to say it's an incredible failure and a failure to, to, to answer clear questions uh, as well. Um, uh, I, I just think it's 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 simply unacceptable. And our local TDs of government parties have a responsibility not to make excuses for that minister, but to to represent the people of County Mead and to hold him and the HSE to account. Um, do you know? Uh, I take it from what you've just said, you don't really know uh, for certain what's going to happen on Wednesday. Uh, or, or if there's any difference between that protocol and what was due to happen today? So I, I, I take from reading what, what, um, what's been said uh, by, by uh, representatives and from speaking from people in the National Ambulance Service that what's publicly, uh, what people are publicly aware of is a restricted um, bypass protocol for, for those who are uh, critically ill, but it may, in fact, if the HSE have their way and there's no intervention from government, it may, it may be an extended uh, bypass protocol. So it may go beyond that. And, I, and I, as I understand this, um, this may be a, a play on behalf of the HSE to, to push ahead with, with their intended changes, maybe, maybe on a quicker timeline than the minister had, in, had, had intended. But... As things stand, we're not entirely sure what the bypass protocol that is to come into effect on Wednesday will look like. Will it just be for critically ill patients or will it be for more than that? And will this uh, move to close NAV and A&E and to, to, to introduce uh, a medical assessment unit happen on a far quicker timescale than was outlined by government? They, they haven't, as you know. Hmm. indicated what, what day is the second uh, step of, of the A&E closure w- would happen on. But I, I'll, I'll make this point, Michael. Um, regardless of what the bypass protocol is, um, I don't think it's an appropriate one 
given the fact that we have such a crisis in the A&E in, uh, in, in Drogheda. I, I think there, there has to, you know, it's been flagged up by consultants at Drogheda that they do not have the capacity to deal with additional uh, mm. additional cases. Well, they wrote and to Stephen Donnelly and told him if he did this, he'd have blood in their, uh, his hands, uh, and they, the, the minister ignored it. Uh, and this is the odd part. It, it seems as though the minister got a, a call from a politician, a senior politician, Minister of State, Junior Minister Thomas Byrne, on Thursday night, uh, and then all of this changed. Uh, and the way this is being handled is very hard, I, I think, for people to accept. I'm not sure that it is acceptable. Uh, I'm not sure if there's a, a fourth option or any other options in uh, terms of trying to understand what happened other than the Minister for Health uh, signed off on something that he didn't understand he was signing off on or that he didn't read what he was being asked to sign off on or that he was misled by the HSE and the National Ambulance Service. Uh, understandably, Thomas Burns said they were critical questions that needed to be ur- answered urgently on Friday uh, because you wouldn't imagine that anybody would leave those questions lingering for a whole weekend. But here we are after the weekend uh, and there is no answer to those questions. Uh, and if the answer is either A, B or C, it is completely unacceptable. Uh, absolutely. That's the point. The common thread to A, B and C is that the minister is not in control. The minister is not in control. Um, uh, uh, the HSE will do what the HSE do, and I think it's it's quite clear. Uh, and it's and in fairness to them, it's set down in government policy. If we go back to the 2013 Smaller Hospital Framework document, um, they are in effect uh, uh, moving on 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 that uh, particular policy. But the HSE have been clear and consistent at a at a management level, at least of their intention to, to downgrade Navan Hospital, close the A&E, introduce an MAU, and to, to transfer patients to, to Drogheda, um, and to make Navan Hospital a Model 2, a model two hospital. Um, what's, what's not clear in all of this is where the, the minister is, what his time frame is, what his plan is. We, we know that government hold it up as a, as a badge of honour that, that the A&E hasn't, hasn't closed. But for me, that's not enough. That's not enough just not to close the A&E. What we want, what the people at County Mead deserve is an A&E that's fit for purpose, that's safe for the people who use it, for all of the people who use it. And the government haven't delivered that. And as far as I'm aware, have no plan to deliver that. Um, And as an alternative, um, they're transferring patients and tend to transfer transfer patients in small numbers or bigger numbers. We we won't know until Wednesday to a hospital that is not fit to take them. And the, the consultants have literally put it up in, in black and white mm. to the minister on repeated occasions and spelled out how short of, of capacity they are there. And anybody, Michael, you, you know, there, there's a particular set of circumstances at the minute. We look at the weather, we look at the, the flus that are going around, we look at ambulances outside uh, Drahad A&E, we look at children waiting in cars outside Drogheda A&E because there isn't capacity inside uh, the paediatrics A&E. And the suggestion that any additional patients would be sent in that direction instead of the opposite, relieving that hospital of, hmm. of, the, of the pressure, is just completely reckless, in my opinion. And this is from a, a minister and a government that has lost control of hospital services in this region. Um. 
Does it seem odd to you uh, that the Minister for Health would ignore the medical expertise uh, which he's been doing for over a year in Navin? Uh, but in terms of how this has developed over the course of the last week, he's, ex- he's ignored the medical expertise in Drogheda. Uh, and what the consultants have said, uh, that it's unsafe and that somebody may die. And he's gone ahead and approved this protocol until he gets a call from a politician who doesn't have any medical expertise by his own admission and then decides, oh, no, we need to do something different. Well, it, it absolutely does. Um, and I think, I, I, as I say, I don't know what private conversations are happening in the background, but we know that for some considerable period, um, the minister has been warned of risks to a small number of patients attending at NAV and A&E. And those risks are acknowledged. And, and as we have spelled out repeatedly, the minister has a number of, uh, has a small number of options here, what he can do. Um, he can close Navin A&E and transfer that risk to, to Drogheda Hospital if Drogheda, but Drogheda Hospital needs to be um, suitably equipped to take that or else you're just making a, a bad situation worse and that has been flagged by the consultants at Drogheda. Or as we want them to do, as Sinn Féin and others want them to do, he can invest in Navin Hospital and bring it up to a standard to ensure that patients are safe. But fundamentally, the issue that is at play here, whether it's in Navin or Drogheda, is that you have a, a, a capacity at the hospital in terms of beds, in terms of staff, to deal with the demand. And you don't have that. You don't have it in Drogheda. Uh, for for a wide range of of specialties, including Mm. stroke. And there was a suggestion that we should be grateful for, you know, there wasn't criticism of the the bypass protocol for stroke patients. Well, there absolutely was from the consultants that were delivering that service. And they continue to criticise that that bypass protocol because they haven't got the the necessary staff at Drogheda to deal with it. So so some of the, the reason why consultants at Drogheda are, are flagging these problems is because they have such bad experience in yeah. the past. And the, we saw the letter from the consultants uh, a number of months ago to the minister, the same group of consultants, and they said that there was no consultation with them uh, about those protocols. Uh, but uh, the minister responded by commissioning a review so the review should take a look at the situation and come up with the answers, either build up Navin Hospital and invest in it and make it safe or close down the emergency department and do whatever is necessary to give Drogheda the capacity to deal with those patients or whatever findings the review team would come to. Well, well, uh, but just, that, that review hasn't been published. Well, also to say, Michael, it's, uh, unfortunately, uh, as we understand it, the review couldn't come up with a, a solution that involved building up Navin Hospital and making it safe. As you know, the, 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 mm. the terms of reference of that specifically looked at um, uh, how to... Um, progress. Uh, how to progress Pro- the transformation, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so in other words, how to safely close Navin A&E. Um, and that, minis- that that report is sitting with the minister since the 8th of October, so he's had it uh, 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 more than two months at this stage. I can only... Why wouldn't, he, why wouldn't he publish that? Well, I, I don't know. He, 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 could, he could only answer for that himself. I, I can speculate what's in it. Um, mm. I, I, it. But there's no reason not to publish it. I, 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 remember back to... 
Um, when was it? June when the Sinn, May was it? The Sinn Féin motion on this, and the minister stood up and uh, said that there was going to be widespread consultation, it was going to be transparent, and all this stuff, and everybody was going to be involved in it, and we'll put everybody's heads together and see what we come up with, we'll come up with the best plan possible for patients. Uh, why wouldn't he publish this? Absolutely, and well, well, I would expect. I, I could speculate uh, a couple of things. One thing, one thing I would suggest is it. It would be difficult for him to to publish it um, and probably outline the range of additional capacities that are needed in Drogheda Hospital and Navan Hospital and community services, GPs, uh, National Ambulance Service. Um, on the one hand, and then to talk about the need to uh, transform transform services in the region. Uh, with patient safety at its very core um, and then to push ahead and do what, what's being done at the minute uh, where there is risk at Navin Hospital, there's risk at Drogheda Hospital and they are carrying on regardless. Um, I think if, if we had that report and I would encourage the Minister to publish it in the first instance but also to go back to the drawing board and look at what investment would be needed in Navin Hospital to bring it up to a safe standard. Mm. Um, but I think if people had it in black and white, it would be very clear. And I think um, it would confirm the concerns of the, the consultants at Drogheda Hospital that they don't have the capacity and that they need X, Y and Z additional capacity for things to be safe mm. at a time when this minister and this government have neither plan nor commitment to deliver on that capacity. Yeah. Uh, am I right in saying uh, that uh, the minister serves the people, that the minister is a public servant, uh, as is any minister, as are the officials of the HSE, and they know the public interest in that, given that 10,000 people marched on one occasion recently uh, because of their concerns about what was happening at the hospital in Navan, and that uh, people would be interested in something like that being published so that they or others could look at it and ascertain what is being proposed. 100% Michael and I think that's a feature in relation to this. We've seen local representatives from Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael in uh, County Mead point towards the HSE. The HSE are blindsiding the government, they're doing solo runs, they're not being straight. I think the HSE are very clear in their intentions. What we need is a government and a minister to take control of the HSE. It's no point um, blustering and blaming the HSE that they're that they're that they're doing their own thing and they're not uh, adhering to what government might want them to do. It's it's incumbent on the minister to ensure that uh, that they uh, um, adhere to government policy, to government intention. I'm not entirely sure what that intention is. Um, but it's essential if we have a, a minister with any credibility that he takes control of the situation. And it's a responsibility of our Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael uh, TDs and senators in County Mead to hold the minister to account. That's the way the system is supposed to work. Mm. No point blaming the HSE in relation to this. It's up to government to get control. OK, there'll be protests uh, today in Navan and in Drogheda as well. Uh, very cold weather uh, to be standing outside hospital gates uh, today, uh, I think. I uh, don't know if many people are expected to turn up, are they? No, well, hopefully we'll, we'll have a good crowd. I think there's, there's huge support. We saw it at, at the public meetings last week. I, I, I have to say um, people don't want to be out protesting, uh, myself no more or anybody else, but I'll be sure to be there at one o'clock at Navan and, and at half one in, in Drogheda. And I know there are uh, protests in other hospitals around the country as well. 
We shouldn't have to do it, but I'm sure the people in Navan and County Mead will continue to support uh, their hospital in Navan, and I'm sure the same can be said of the people in Loud for the Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. We had expected to get answers uh, to those questions uh, which were critical and urgent in the words of Minister Thomas Byrne on Friday. We haven't managed to do that. Uh, We have been in contact uh, with uh, the department uh, to see if they have something to say about it. Uh, They haven't said anything about it as yet. We haven't heard from the minister and uh, the whole thing seems to be Uh, as cloudy as it was on Friday but as you heard those protests will take place today at one o'clock and at half past one Uh, Thomas Byrne wasn't available to us today unfortunately Uh, we had a Navin listener asking us where is Damien English haven't heard from him lately Uh, well if you were listening last week uh, you'll know that we asked the Minister to join us on Monday's programme about this Uh, the Minister wasn't available had hoped to do it on Tuesday then that didn't happen uh, and then had hoped to do it on Thursday or Friday of last week. Uh, that, as it turned out, wasn't possible either. Uh, and the minister is now hoping uh, that he'll have time uh, available to speak to us about this on the programme tomorrow morning. So all going well, we'll hear from Damien English on the programme uh, the, tomorrow morning. But our, our thanks this morning to Sinn Féin TD for me, the Sterner work. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well... Talk about grim discoveries a couple of weeks out from Christmas. Uh, the discovery of two bodies in separate locations in County Meath on Saturday, one at Academy Street in Navan and the second in Kilbride. Let's speak to the chair of Meath County Council, Independent Councillor Nick Killian, who's on the line. And a very good morning and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, really, uh, hard to think uh, of uh, two separate killings like this in the county. It's unreal, and uh, it sounds unreal. And life has become very cheap in this country, and murder uh, is happening every day. And I suppose even when one talks about murder and what's happened and what's happened, we've, I think even as a nation, we've become blasé about it. Um, they, they now don't uh, make page one or page three of the newspapers they're buried back in, in newspapers when you're reading about them and my thought the minute I heard about that um, situation in Kilbride the first thing I thought of was some poor family out there is missing somebody mm. and the hurt and pain that that's going to cause that family and the, the, the loved one that they've lost and it doesn't matter who they are what yeah. they are or what they did or what they didn't do and that's now been upgraded to a murder investigation it appears yes. that the man in so question was violently killed at a, a different location to where the body was discovered he, he was wrapped up it seems then in a, a roll of carpet and left in Kilbride a truly gruesome affair altogether yeah, as I said, it's it's beyond belief, and you know, to the people of that quiet part of County Mead and uh, where Mead borders Dublin, um, beautiful, beautiful countryside, and for somebody walking along to find such a situation and for the people living in the area it's it's also horrible for them as well it really is but something that that dog walker will have to live with uh, for the rest of their yeah. lives it's terrible yeah. I mean, can you can you imagine even yourself or myself michael finding ourselves in that scenario mm. it's it's just beyond belief
I suppose the um, hope is that somebody saw something somewhere because, uh, I mean, it's it's not that easily done to roll up a, a body in carpet like that uh, and dispose of it then. No, and, you know, I had the Gardaí yesterday looking for a dash cam and for other video evidence that might be there. Um, certainly around, I'm sure people will do that but like if you take the area where it is I know it's the Belgree area it's a very quiet area I can't imagine any CCTV uh, images of, of this happening in that area but I'm sure that wherever it happened and whenever uh, the Gardaí are obviously going to do a, a very good job and this is also difficult for the Gardaí it's a busy time of the year mm. and um, murder unfortunately takes away a lot of their personnel onto other jobs yeah, absolutely. Uh, from, from other jobs that they're doing and other investigations they're doing. And it's a huge effort because I'm aware of it was what happened in uh, my own village of Rathotes um, a month ago and that poor girl um, was murdered as well. So yeah, yeah. Uh, the time and effort that has to go into all of this. The one in Rathotes um, was different. The person uh, was uh, caught very quickly. But this is going mm. to take a lot of investigation, a lot of time and a lot of personnel. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't help uh, compare uh, the two incidents, uh, the one in Navin and uh, the one in Ratoth, in that uh, it's a, a Polish man in his 40s uh, who undoubtedly was starting a new life in this country who has lost his life. A woman in her 30s uh, has been arrested in connection with that uh, and no doubt that will be dealt with by the courts. Yeah, and I think, again, in, in the situation in Navin, you know, it's, it's not nice for any town to, to have a, a murder within it. And as I said, it doesn't matter where the people are from. Um, and, I, you know, it's, it's, it's the pain and hurt that it causes their families. And that poor man, as you said, from Poland, mm. um, what is his family thinking this morning? Yeah. Honey? And they're hurting. Yeah, and very far away, I'm sure. Uh, at least uh, I'm sure there's people uh, well known to him are very far away. And it uh, makes it all the harder in many respects. Um, while you're with us uh, this morning as uh, the chair of uh, the County Council, can we ask you about the hospitals? Uh, that is uh, the one in Navan and the one in Drogheda. There's been a, a lot of com- controversy and indeed a lot of confusion in, in recent days about what's happening. Well, I'm totally confused at this stage, Michael. Um, like last Monday, um, my colleagues uh, voted through on a, a motion uh, requesting Minister um, Donnelly to defer the action in relation to the ambulance um, situation that was meant to happen today and I believe has now been deferred till Wednesday due to, I think, a strikes, uh, ambulance drivers in Northern Ireland. Um, we wrote to him, of course, uh, we wrote them. I rang his office. Um, no response whatsoever. So we're not getting any response from the HSE, and we're certainly not getting any response from Minister Dundee's office. Now there was a very good meeting took place in the New Grange Hotel in Navan, uh, very well attended. Uh, unfortunately, there was only uh, there was uh, four, no, three, three. Um, National rep- or, uh, public representatives from the Dáil and Shannon uh, there. The rest of our TDs have gone to ground on this and we're not hearing anything from them whatsoever. And there's total confusion. I mean, if you read the articles uh, that have been published recently, um, I, I just noticed the words, it's, it's typical HSE wording, um, high acuity patients 
will will no longer be brought to Navin. So I don't know what a high acuity per, person is. Um, certainly that particular word escapes me. But what is going to be left to be brought to Navin at this stage? We're in a situation where cardiac um, stroke victims are already being brought to, um, or by, it's been by, Navin has been bypassed. So what's left to be brought to, to Navin Hospital at this stage by ambulance? And again, I'm thinking about the great staff that's in the hospital working away day in, day out, and that this is like the sword of Damasais over their head, uh, not knowing what's happening. And I think it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's not a good week politically from the point of view that um, Navin Hospital won't be high on the agenda of some of our local representatives that will be more worried about what jobs they'll have after Saturday. So, it's, you know, they're not thinking about Navin Hospital at the present time. Um, I noticed the protesters at the hospital today and I'd ask people to attend it if they possibly can and show solidarity and support, not just for the saving of the hospital, but for the staff within the hospital. And one of the things that we were promised was better communications. In fact, that was at the meeting that uh, took place with public rep- with my colleagues on Mead County Council and management representatives from the HSE. Since that meeting, not one piece of communication has been given to um, any of the county councillors uh, in the county, and we've received nothing in. So improving communications, um, that's not on the agenda for the HSE or the department, obviously. Their communications in this has been absolutely appalling and we're still in the dark. And I I know like yourself and you've kept this campaign going, but I don't know whether you know any more than I do this morning, uh, Michael. Uh, uh, I think uh, what I do know is that there's a cloud of confusion that was to be cleared on Friday, uh, but just seems uh, very cloudy uh, this morning. Uh, We have to leave it there. for some meeting. Yeah. Okay, Nick, we have to leave it there for the moment. Okay. Uh, Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning, Independent Councillor. Nick Killian is the Chair of Mead County Council. Michael Reed on LMFM. If you're driving at the moment, you're probably conscious of uh, the weather conditions. It's very, very cold, uh, but there can be hazardous conditions and you can come upon them all of a sudden, uh, whether it's ice or black ice uh, or uh, somebody in front of you stops very quickly. Uh, and you're just that little bit close for the weather conditions uh, and maybe you're holding back as a, a result of this uh, but imagine you went into a skid right now could you imagine the idea of going into it I don't mean to <laughs> upset you if you're hard driving at the moment but just think about it what would you do if you went into a skid now and let's say you went into a skid and you were heading towards a wall or a tree or something for that matter what would you do uh, well you probably know that what you're meant to do is to turn your steering uh, so that you actually aim for the tree or the wall or whatever it is uh, as if you're going to be cool, calm and collect enough to do that in a situation like that and I think the best advice is don't go into a skid if it's at all possible and do everything possible to stop you from doing that because that's what you're meant to do. Paddy Cummins, Head of Communications with AA Ireland is on the line. I'm not sure any of us would remember to do that Paddy but if you did it what would be the consequence? Would you end up turning around in a full circle? Look, Mark, good morning, Michael. It depends really on, on, on a couple of factors. The first thing is, uh, I suppose, and the, the sound advice is, is that if you really do slow down and uh, 
you know, you're less likely to skid in the first place. So, you, you know, keep back from the car in front of you. The, the last thing you want is a collision into the back of another car. So, so keep back. But look, in the event of you losing traction, there's a couple of things to remember. The first is, and it's counterintuitive, is not to stand on the brakes because, you know, that's where you're very likely to lock up your wheels and then you're sliding uncontrollable into a, the tree or the bush or whatever else it is. So, so the, most of us are driving front-wheel drive cars. So the easiest thing to do, if you can do it, is to just let, off the, let your foot off the brake, slow down using your gears. So if you're in third, go down to second, go down to first, and you will start to see the car pull back a little bit yourself. Now, look, if you are heading towards something, you do have to use your brakes, but just try not to absolutely slam on them because that can often lock them up. Most of us are driving cars with ABS, anti-lock brakes, so you will hear them pulse and and judder a little bit. Mm. That is that is the brakes doing its job. So it's, there's nothing wrong. There's no fault. Just uh, let it do its thing because an anti-lock brake will will judder the brakes to allow you to actually mm. have some steering input that so you can steer away from the tree or whatever it is that you're you're, you're yeah. careering towards. But if you steer towards the tree or whatever it is, what happens? Do you end up coming around the circle? Well, no. It, 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 the thing to remember is, is not to if the, if their back end of your car is going right, you need to steer right. Right. So it's it's steering away. It's it's, it's it can be a little bit confusing. So if you're so what can happen is that you're you'll find that the back end of your car is heading out towards the middle of the road. You just need to steer right. To if the back end is going right, you need to steer right. If the left the car is if the back end is going left, you need to steer left. But the the key thing to remember is as well is just. Try and keep all of your steering inputs very light, very smooth, not jerky, and also just avoid that sudden uh, jab of the brakes because that can upset the balance of the car and that's where you're in trouble. But oh, really, look, it, it, there's less chance of any of this happening in the first place if you drive really, really slowly and just keep back from the car in front. Because, Michael, the, the main thing to remember is, and you know, I'm, I'm like a broken record this week talking about it, is mm. most of us are driving around on summer tyres because that's what we have on our cars in Ireland. In countries like Germany, there's a, there's a legal requirement to swap over your tyres in October to winter tyres. Basically, the compound of the tyres that we drive in doesn't, perform as well once the temperatures drop below seven degrees it's not that they're dangerous they just don't perform as well so that's why they change the tires over in other countries so we are at a little bit of a handicap in in the tires that we have fished the cars at the moment so we just need to bear that in mind mm. we do need to stay back and it doesn't matter if someone's beeping the horn behind you or shaking their fist at you you know let them because we all need to mind ourselves and be safe and all this uh, of course uh, depends on you being able to see because uh, it can be very hard yeah. to see with all that frost and the car, or the condensation, for that matter. Yeah, look, and uh, you know, I've been saying as well, and just warning people, obviously, just be careful of putting boiling water on windscreens. Mm. It's too much of a thermal shock for the windscreen, and sometimes, well, sometimes it won't. You know, it's not always mm. going to break mm. it, but it's not a good idea to keep doing it. A little bit of warm, you know, warm water will Tempest, do it. Room temperature, um, really. Yeah, yeah mm. exactly. Um, some of those sprays you can get as well, mm. and, and the petrol stations will do it as well. So anti-freeze spray, but also it's a good idea just to. Let the wind, let the car totally clear before you move off. Mm. And as well as that, remember that you know your tires and everything are. If they're sitting in your driver, the whole thing has been really, really cold overnight. So you really want to make get a little bit of temperature in those tires. So just take it very, very easy mm. when you're moving off, especially at the start of the day. What about four wheel drive? Four wheel drive doesn't really help if the tires aren't getting any grip. Like a four wheel drive vehicle will move you off a little bit easier but it's not going to stop you any easier because every every car has four brakes 
it's just you know so uh, you know there's lots of people who unfortunately are driving around in, in SUVs and it, they have a, an opinion that they're invincible um, but it's not often not the case now if the car is is geared up for that that's different but if you're driving a, a four wheel drive on summer tyres you, you might get a little bit more traction moving off but you, if you get into a skid it's not going to really help you so just don't just because you're driving one of those you might do a little bit better but don't think you're a hero either Alright I, I think uh, it's a, a question of uh, prevention rather than trying to cure an emergency situation just don't get into it uh, and I, I imagine that most of us uh, do know how to uh, avoid that uh, as a, a result of uh, the cold weather slow down and stay back yep. so Thank you indeed Paddy for joining us on the programme uh, this morning Paddy Cummins is Head of Communications with AA Ireland Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, an event organised by the European Parliament Liaison Office in Dublin last week heard that Ireland needs to take immediate action to prevent the growing problem of child trafficking into this country. That call came from Fine Gael MEP Maria Walsh, who's on the line. And a very good morning to you and thank you for joining us on the programme today. Uh, you believe it's a growing problem. Uh, who uh, are, are the people people that are trafficking children into this country and for what purpose? Good morning. Thank you very much, Michael, for, uh, for covering such uh, a, a silent topic but a very growing uh, issue-based topic. So right now, um, in an context, just for listeners, about 22% of victims being trafficked in and around the European Union are as children. Uh, and it's estimated that thousands of children are being trafficked currently in and out around Ireland. Uh, a significant portion of those are those young children being groomed uh, for, uh, by gangland uh, and for the drug trade. Uh, uh, um, a difficult industry, considering you might have seven, eight, nine-year-olds working within areas, working for uh, gangland criminals within, within the drug traffic trade. We have some... Uh, are being trafficked due to sexual exploitation uh, and for labour exploitation. Um, this was originally flagged uh, in our record of it as a country during our campaign for the security council piece. Uh, and sadly, it doesn't seem that there's been a comprehensive plan put in place to address that. Working with NECPAC to do phenomenal work educating uh, Hotel, hotel owners and those working within the hotel grouping across the country as well as Tusla and folks like myself in these positions uh, as political leaders both in the EU and working within an Irish political party uh, really important that we all understand what children uh, being trafficked is and what it looks like raising the awareness mm. ending this and ultimately those being held like ourselves here in the EU, like at National Front, um, our civil servants, um, and against, I guess, all stakeholders understand the growing need of this. Okay, um, and where where are these children? Are they being held captive in plain sight? Yes, essentially, yes. Uh, speaking with an organisation called uh, Inner City Organisation Network, so ICON and short. The phenomenal woman called Paula, Community Development Worker there, shows us that within the communities they work for in inner city Dublin, but this is not just in Dublin, this is all across the country. Uh, there's children on, on corners working in certain streets, through gangland, and being trafficked. 
Um, and we can dress it up in any other shape or form and use quite soft language, but there are children being trafficked. They're being gleaned and they're being uh, fed into and associated with a criminal, uh, criminal gangland for mm. the exploitation and to sell drugs. Um, and to your very, very point, uh, yes, in hidden and plain sight. Okay, and when you talk about women and girls uh, being brought here for sexual exploitation, I take it the girls that you're talking about are put into prostitution, uh, that they're 16, 70, and that type of age? No, sadly, reports are showing they're much younger. Um, on average age of 16, 17, 15, but we do have younger ones as far as 10, uh, down to as far as 8, reported. Uh, being involved in the sexual exploitation market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Um, I don't know exactly where in terms of the location, but, and whether they're coming into the border uh, or coming into the... To, uh, to both in the country or in the, our airlines. Um, but, and then being moved on, we, we, I haven't uh, been able to fully get the picture about where and, and, and how, but ultimately this is what the police are showing, working with uh, organizations like NEXPAS to try and uh, essentially figure out, A, how do we call this out and how do we end this? How do we protect young children and women being trafficked because it's disproportionately affecting women, girls, and children, as I pointed out. And then working with the likes of the Ombudsman, uh, like with research, uh, research units, and we had a representative from mm. the University of Limerick sharing her work on the Green Time Project, and then with the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission, um, and ultimately putting every player in the ring like we did last week in the ETLO, um, to, to and how do you do that? You've been talking about screening people as they come in through the airports to see if they're vulnerable. Yes, uh, screening is one, uh, one element. Um, uh, education is a phenomenal tool also, Monty. So, as I mentioned earlier, Metcalf screen. Uh, those working in uh, the hospitality sector as well as peaceful, so those working within the social working space in our communities. Um, and each, yourself and myself, everybody listening should, should have understanding of what trafficking is. And ultimately, to break our biases to assume that it is in a different country going out, going, happening outside of the country and not actually within our communities. 
Um, so that's one one element that I learned uh, and that I'll be working with these organizations uh, following the event that I hosted last week. Um, I think from a legislation standpoint, we need to ensure um, that there's better uh, judicial systems put in place. Um, and also, if a young person, in, in, for instance, is uh, involved in gangland uh, and drug trafficking, uh, because they were green, we also need to understand their whole story and look at that individual, that young person, holistically to understand well, why were they trafficked and why are they selling drugs or within the drug trade mm. uh, or sexual ex- being exploitation. So that we are actually charging those adults who are grooming these young people and not necessarily just the young people who are being caught. Yeah, well, qu- quite often they're brought here under false pretenses, aren't they? Uh, they believe uh, that they're coming to a job or to study uh, and end up having their passport taken off them or their families at home threatened uh, and feel that they've no option but to stay uh, in this dreadful situation that they've found themselves in. Absolutely, and unfortunately, uh, with the Russian war against Ukraine and, and the multiple wars happening worldwide, um, but in particular the Russian war against Ukraine, you have to be very vigilant um, to understand that this is a high trafficking time when a war is so close uh, to, to, to Ireland and to the other 26 member states. We need to ensure that we're working, uh, making sure that any vulnerable children coming in and coming out of the country are being protected and not here to your very things under false pretenses. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. That's uh, Fine Gael MEP Maria Walsh and her apologies uh, for uh, the poor quality of uh, that line. Um, let's uh, go to some of the comments coming to us. I see that there's been uh, a crash on the M1 at exit 6 uh, and uh, I'm sure you'll be advised uh, of the consequences of that. Uh, undoubtedly, uh, that will cause uh, some tailbacks. Uh, that's at exit 6 on the M1. Uh, text uh, this morning uh, from uh, Deirdre who says uh, that the emergency department in Navan is vital. Deirdre never uh, fails to get in touch, uh, but uh, we have to have it. Uh, and for everybody in County Mead, it's a great hospital. Uh, and uh, she's looking forward to getting her hip replaced in the hospital. Uh, good luck with that, Deirdre. Uh, we'd a call from Elsie who says she wishes that those who are planning on attending the hospital protests today, uh, she wishes them all of the best and urges them to wrap up warm. It's a important that numbers are high to send a message to the Minister and the HSE that people are willing to fight to retain services. I, I can't imagine it being a very big protest with the weather that's in it today, Elsie, uh, but uh, maybe people will come out, uh, but it's really very cold to be standing outside for any length of time. She also says it's hugely important that local public representatives at a, a national and local level come out in force to support the protest. There's no point in sending a representative in their place. The people want to see their public reps front and centre at these events. Well, thanks, Elsie. I suppose we'll find out in time uh, what the numbers are and if uh, the politicians uh, turn out to stand alongside those protesting. John was uh, in touch with us uh, this morning after hearing Paddy Common of AA Roadwatch on with us and he said it all made perfect sense to him but he says that unfortunately experts like Paddy could be wasting their time trying to get their message across to some people. Uh, John says he was driving into work this morning and like him most people were erring on the side of caution, caution, uh, travelling carefully but 
every couple of minutes some idiot sped past the line of traffic at high speed no regard for their own safety or other road users what kind of person drives at speed in minus five and in icy fog uh, well I think uh, you came across that person this morning John uh, and thank you indeed uh, for that uh, another uh, text uh, from Paddy who says if you are driving today will you please turn on your lights can you not turn on your lights all of uh, the time most cars today will tell you that they're on if you get out and don't turn them off uh, and it's far safer safer in uh, summer let alone in winter let alone when there's freezing fog uh, you'll do yourself and others a great favour if you turn on your lights and are seen and allow others to see you today. Thank you indeed uh, for that. Uh, somebody else says, news must be scarce, Michael. If all you can put in the headlines is me, all Martin is worried about housing. <laughs> I think Mary in Trim uh, had her wheat mix this morning. She says, uh, me, all Martin knows that. Uh, Avril in touch saying, it's just shocking uh, listening to that in interview about young girls being trafficked into this country, little eight-year-olds being abused, put into prostitution, uh, Avril, apparently, sickening to the stomach. Why is this allowed to happen? Um, there's probably a million one answers to that, uh, Avril, but uh, there's certainly one uh, I think that's worth all of us considering. Um, you can't have prostitutes without sex buyers. And if you have eight-year-old prostitutes, somebody is buying sex from them or their pimp, uh, but somebody wants to have sex with an eight-year-old girl. Uh, And I think that uh, is the fundamental problem. If you didn't have that, if there wasn't a market, uh, if you can call it that, uh, you wouldn't have eight-year-old girls working prostitution because nobody would do business or whatever the terms are. Uh, And that is the problem. It's... Uh, men with distorted minds uh, who find little girls attractive uh, and are willing to pay for it. Uh, but there you go. Thank you indeed, Avril. Uh, thanks to everybody who's been in touch with us so far today. If you haven't been in touch and you would like uh, to make contact and uh, indeed uh, have your comment on the programme today, we really would love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 041-983-2000. You can ring us now on that number, 041-983-2000. You can text a message uh, or WhatsApp it to the same number. That's 0861-800-658. Text or WhatsApp. 086-1800-658 and you can always email michael at lmfm.ie Michael Reed on LMFM. If you do uh, the National Lottery, uh, you probably wonder why it's so elusive and who is it that wins? If ever anybody wins, uh, for that matter, of course, some people win. And sometimes uh, you hear of uh, people winning, but they haven't claimed the prize money. It's hard to believe, isn't it? Uh, But uh, if you don't do the lotto or if you only do it occasionally, would you do it or do it more often uh, if there were more prizes available for you? It's an interesting question, I think, for some people. Some people will say yes, some would say no. Uh, But uh, I would imagine that some people would do the lotto more often if there was more prizes. Uh, But what seems to be true is that you'd be more inclined to do the lotto if you heard an ad and that marketing works better and makes more people do the lotto 
And this is the argument that Premier Lotteries Ireland has been making about why it spends so much of unclaimed winnings on advertising. It falls under the licence to PLI to decide how it is that the promotional spend is um, allocated as between um, uh, additional prizes and um, incremental marketing. Um, When PLI makes that decision, we're making it in uh, the... uh, in keeping with the principles in the Act, which um, uh, are to maintain the... or Sorry, to promote the long-term um, sustainability of the National Lottery uh, and also to maximise prizes for good causes. Um, the uh, reality... Uh, sorry, we have it, in many years' experience of running additional prizes in lottery games, uh, for instance... In August of this year, for instance, there was um, an extra €1 million must be one prize every Saturday in Euromillions. And so we have many years of experience of understanding how much uplift in sales would come from such a promotion. You get more from advertising, essentially. That's correct. Right. That's Andrew Algo, or Algo, uh, who is uh, the CEO of uh, Premier Lotteries Ireland. Uh, He was answering a question there from... Social Democrat uh, Catherine Martin uh, and uh, was speaking at a meeting of uh, the Public Accounts Committee. Imelda Munster, Sinn Féin TD uh, for Loud and East Mead is a, a member of uh, that committee and uh, sat through those hearings and on the line with us. And a very good morning to you, Imelda Munster, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, put it into context, uh, how much did they have uh, in unclaimed winnings and how much went back into extra prizes? Between 2015 and 2021, there was 124 million euro in unclaimed prize money, right? And out of that, 98%, 122 million, they spent on advertising. And just a miserly 2 million was spent on top-up prizes. But that information only came to light because the CNAG had issued a report a report and Premier Lotteries Ireland actually uh, contacted the CNAG's office and asked and he's the state's financial watchdog asked him to withhold that information they didn't want it getting out in the public domain and um, whether they thought it would damage their reputation of the national lottery or affect their profits mm. but just just to give the background, Mike, the National Lottery was privatised in, I think it was 2013 or 2014 by the the public, the Minister for Public Expenditure Reform, it was Labour's Brendan Howland at the time, and it was the first lottery in Europe um, and only the second in the world to sell the licence for an upfront payment. But um, at some stage, just prior to the sale itself, there was approval given by government to add two additional balls to the lottery, Mm. which would decrease the likelihood of of a jackpot winner. Mm. And last year, uh, the lotto rolled over 62 times between the 5th of June and the 15th of January this year. And they want that Um, to happen, don't they? Because they argue that when it rolls over, the prize money increases and more people tend to play when the prize is higher. No, if you remember, there was public outrage at oh, that, yeah. that mm. nobody was winning, <laughs> know, you yeah. know, it was rolled over. Yeah. And the regulator didn't even bother to step in and address... But Premier Lotteries, Pre- Premier Lotteries argue that when the prizes soar, then more people p- play. No, they were forced then, do you remember, the, at that, because of the, 
the public outrage, they were forced to introduce a must-win mm. um, draw, if you like. And that actually boosted their sales. I think it generated £180 million, um, from the report in revenue. And the, driving the, the year's total sales then in excess of a billion mm. for the first time ever. But the meeting um, was on Thursday was very, very frustrating to... to to be polite about it, to say that they weren't forthcoming with any answers or information, you know. Um, what about that information that you have now, that you say they didn't want to be made public? It's staggering, isn't it? 124 yeah. million euro yeah. that went unclaimed over seven years or so, is it? That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Imagine that. Like The CNAG gave us a breakdown and it was an average, now I just don't have the figures in front mm. of me, but it was an average of about 17 million a year. So that's huge. Like, mm. who, who, you know, do the people not check their tickets or, or what? Like, it's it's a staggeringly high amount of unclaimed prize money. You know, mm. I mean, so they um, got that hundred and twenty-four million euro and spent yeah. and, and and spent one hundred and twenty-two of it on advertising. One hundred and twenty-two of it on advertising, and they didn't want that getting out into the public domain and they'd contacted the CNAG's office as I right. said and asked it to withhold it but mm. and, I mean, and as we heard there instead of putting that money uh, up for grabs if you like uh, by making it prize money uh, they feel that more people will play the lottery if they advertise it more No I mean there's one Well that's the what they say money, isn't it Yeah, yeah, yeah. But mm-hmm. sure, I mean the prize money if the prize money goes up more people get involved, more people will buy. They had ample opportunity. I mean, the licence for the for the National Lottery actually very clearly states that unclaimed prize money shall be spent on special draws, um, top-up prizes and marketing. But they chose to spend £122 million of the £124 million on advertising. Mm. And as I said, a miserly £2 million on um, top-up prizes. And people... When people hear, with the advertising, when people hear that 90%, um, you know, goes back into the community, they think of community groups or sports projects or good mm. causes. But in reality, that figure, Premier Lotteries include uh, the normal prize money and shop commissions in that 90%. But the, the worrying thing for us, if it wasn't for the CNAG's report and his refusal to uh, redact information in the report... Uh, this wouldn't have come to light. But the the, the mm. annoying thing is that the regulator did nothing about it. Well, what's That's wrong with the money? Well, it seems to be light touch and hands-off approach. What problem do you have with the money uh, that's gone to good causes? Because Premier Lotteries took over in 2014 and since then uh, £1.7 billion apparently has been given over to good causes. No, I did, of course, nobody has a problem with that. We're talking mm. about the 124 million and I mean it's unclaimed prize money mm. that's what it is but the, uh, the, the argument we heard but the argument off. we heard a moment ago um, was that be, because they adv- they spent that money on advertising more people played the lottery and when more people play the lottery premier lotteries uh, take in more money and then that means that there's more money for good causes that's the argument well I mean the, the advertising is that 90% goes back into the community. Well, it actually doesn't, because out of that 90%, the reality, I think we were told, 
uh, somewhere was closer to 56% of that because they include the prize money and shop commissions and all of that. But the 90% doesn't go back into the community as, as they say it does because shop commissions and all of that comes out of that. But the very fact, the issue is that it's unclaimed prize money that they should actually top up. The licence is very clear. It sh- should be spent on top-up prizes, special draws and marketing. But they decided to spend 90% of it on the marketing. If it's unclaimed prize money, that money should, the majority of it, go back mm. into further prize money. Not a lot of people mustn't check their tickets afterwards. It's amazing. It's amazing. 124 it's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. Now, you say, even if you won 100 euro, you'd, <laughs> yeah. you'd be delighted. Like, you'd say, mm. oh, Grant, I won 100 euro on the lotto, like or the scratch cards. But the other thing is, well, as well, player welfare, they were questioned about that as well. Yeah. And they couldn't say what they spend on player welfare. Now, everybody knows, you know, people buy scratch cards. But mm. there are a certain cohort of people who would have a problem with scratch cards that they buy too, you know they buy too many of them you know the, the, the addictive nature of mm. scratching cards and I quizzed them about that and I think he said there was a limit you could only buy 10 but you could go back in mm. have, you could go home scratch the 10 cards uh, in one go like you could buy 10 but you could go home scratch the cards and go back in a half an hour later and buy another 10 yeah. and another 10 but they're they're spending nothing that they could tell us mm. well, on we, player welfare. We, or we, we seem to look on the lottery different to other types of gambling. There's gambling and then there's the lottery and it'll be interesting yeah. when this legislation uh, becomes law on gambling uh, if the national lottery will... Oh. <laughs> I don't think we're going to get a response to that question, but uh, it'll be interesting as to whether it, it does come under that gambling legislation uh, or, or not. Uh, I'd have asked uh, Imelda Munster if uh, she thought it, it should, but we'll have to leave that for another day because our time has run out there. But thanks to Sinn Féin TD for Louth and East Mead. Imelda Munster, who left us rather abruptly there. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, it's uh, 20 years on since uh, the SAVI report. Uh, SAVI stands for Sexual Abuse and Violence in Ireland. And uh, this was a survey of the personal experiences of more than 3,000 people in uh, this country. Uh, and it uh, looked at uh, the prevalence of uh, sexual abuse and violence in Ireland, described as groundbreaking research. Uh, it has not been replicated, but a new study uh, is underway. Let's speak uh, to Nolene Blackwell, CEO of uh, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. And uh, a very good morning to you, Nolene, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. You had a, a webinar last week looking at 20 years on from uh, the Savvy Report. Uh, and uh, a lot of the speakers spoke about Ireland 20 years ago and how different the country was then. That's right. Um, you know, you, you think 20 years and actually you can kind of go by in a flash uh, as, as you're, you know, getting older as well. And you kind of think maybe it wasn't that long ago, but it was an Ireland of a different age. It was Ireland before smartphones and before the Internet was widely known. But the smartphone literally wasn't anywhere. You know, nobody had them mm. uh, in Ireland. So that question of social media, all of these things were just starting up. At the same time, and this is even nearly more unusual for me when I try to think about it, 
all of those reports that we've learned to know about, about institutional abuse, the Ferns report, uh, institutional abuse in the Wexford Diocese, the Murphy report, the Ryan report, all of these about um, uh, Catholic church abuse, uh, church abuse, Christian church abuse in general, none of them, Michael, had been published back in those days. So when this report was commissioned by my very um, prescient uh, predecessors in Dublin Rape Crisis Centre, uh, Olive Braden and Alan O'Malley Dunlop at the time, there was no information really about the size of the problem of sexual abuse. I would go further and I would say that an awful lot of people thought that it really wasn't a problem in Ireland at all. And then when the report came out, because it was still a, a time where nobody talked about sexual abuse, nobody challenged uh, a member of the clergy of any denomination. You just didn't do that. And still this showed uh, that in in Ireland back in those days that almost one in two women, 42% of women, and 28% of men in a big survey, 28% of them had experienced some form of sexual violence. The numbers went a bit down if you if you looked at, at, at actual rape uh, and if you looked at sexual contact, uh, then if it's sexual non-contact, there was a smaller group. So you were getting, um, you were getting a picture hmm of a really serious problem but it didn't really it didn't even make a doyle debate I think the suspicion since then is uh, that the problem could actually be greater than what you've just described, 42% of women, 28% of men reporting uh, some type of sexual uh, abuse and violence uh, in uh, 2002 Uh, but uh, what it preceded, as you say, these other reports, and each of these reports uh, uh, triggered memories, prompted people to come forward and tell their own stories. Uh, we see that yeah. even today with Black Rock, uh, one or two people come forward, and next thing, uh, there's other people going, well, actually, it happened to me as well. Yes, exactly. And and then there was the more general um, Me Too movement as well, um, and there uh, and it was shown. Actually, one of the things... One of the things that the Ferns and Murphy and Ryan report dealt with was um, institutional abuse, mainly of children along the way. And um, Professor Hannah McGee, who was the lead author in that report back in 2020, was the keynote speaker at this and is still really very much engaged in research for the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland, who carried out the report commissioned by the Rape Crisis Centre. But she made the point and she showed in her uh, presentation that actually the, the, that at the time only revealed that about 3% of those who revealed sexual violence uh, had it in the school setting or the institutional setting as children. So now I think it is much more likely Mm. that people would be prepared to say it. Listen, it is hard enough even in this day and age for people who contact our helpline to use words like rape or to use words like sexual abuse because they think, you know, they kind of stick in your throat and mm. you don't want to have to talk about them. Yeah. Uh, so there's a good chance that this new prevalence study mm. will we'll show a different picture. But the, of course the shame is yeah. 
you can't compare the two anymore because Ireland of 2002 is so different from Ireland when this report comes out in 20 next year. Mm. It, it's just, it's a, a whole different piece of work. There is going, if they had done two or three of these in the meantime over the 20 years, we could have made, a, some, we could have seen how the trends were going, were they getting better, or were things getting better, or were things getting worse. I heard Hannah McGee, Professor McGee uh, of the RCSI, uh, who was one of uh, the original uh, researchers, as you say, into this, talk about that figure of 3% uh, and how it related predominantly, I suppose, uh, to priests and the religious, uh, but abusers in institutionalised settings. Uh, and she, she she also asked, who are the other 97% uh, if, yeah. if they're not the religious? Who are they? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. But who are so, who? I'm asking you, Nolene, Who are they? Right. So, so uh, an an awful lot of them. And again, this is the thing that maybe wasn't picked up to any great extent. An awful lot of them were in families, and we keep forgetting that 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 most sexual abuse is um, uh, is. It, carried out by somebody known to somebody and somebody in a position of authority. So th- those those figures showed and, uh, and, and Savvy showed as our statistics in Dublin Rape Crisis Centre we've been collecting statistics as well for as long as we've been around 40 years and more. But every single year we show that about half of the adults who contact us looking for help and therapeutic help have been victims of uh, childhood sexual abuse, a little less than half now maybe, but in or about half. And of those, at least half have experienced that abuse within the family setting. And if you take the home setting, it's maybe 70%. So, you know, that thing that came up during COVID as well, Michael, that mm. the home can be a very dangerous place for people. There was a there was quite an important and necessary focus on the harm to uh, the domestic violence and harm to partners and children uh, that way. But the truth is as well that sexual abuse in the home was not taken seriously. Was not condemned as the uh, as the most as a most horrific form of destruction of a child's innocence in the place that they could be saved so so the truth about savvy what savvy showed and um, and it didn't get the attention it needed back at the time was that there were that that it was allowed uh, in places that there wasn't support available for people mm. who needed it when they suffered that awful harm to their system, that people probably knew that something was going wrong in families, but we all knew as well that the family was sacrosanct and people didn't want to hear in public life. I think maybe what has changed a bit since Savvy as well is that now it is recognised that sexual abuse and violence of all sorts is a danger to us the public to our society as well okay. and therefore it has to be addressed. Fast forward 20 years if you will Nolene to today in other words uh, because in 2002 the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre commissioned uh, the Savvy Report and uh, I think uh, it's been one of uh, the most important documents that feeds into the thinking at the centre and uh, the way uh, that you've been providing services since its publication uh, an important tool because of the information in it uh, there's to be a new 
report of its type. The CSO uh, is carrying out that research at the moment. I'm sure you'll be waiting with great anticipation to get the findings of, of that. And how would you hope to uh, put it to work in terms of the services that you provide? Yeah, so what, what it should give us is um, a better... I mean, if the figures are like they were back in 2002, Michael, then we are clearly at need to put a lot more support into the prevention of uh, sexual violence, into our education systems, uh, into the therapeutic supports we have available for people when they aim to heal, into our prosecution services so that people aren't hurt and traumatised again by our court system, as can happen. And I think we will have to recognise it as a major mental health issue in our society, but one that is fixable, which is one of the most frustrating things about this, is that we could actually reduce and shrink the problem of sexual violence and uh, if, we, if we put the time and energy and resources into it. So that will be kind of, that will be, but we will also see, I think, things that we have we have our own theories about but we will be able to see the level of online um, abuse that may be happening and if we can see that then there will be uh, an onus not just on us in services but on those who publish online abuse through the social media platforms or through digital platforms to do uh, to do something to reduce that and there will be an onus on government. So it's like a whole lot of things mm. where you have up-to-date information, where you have valid and um, widely uh, thought-through uh, information about the situation. You can target much better. I have said to you on several occasions and you, you've said to me on other occasions if we don't have that information how do we actually know that we're doing the right thing we're very dependent on the information we collect but we're a small organisation we do run the National 24 Hour Helpline and that gives us an understanding of some trends along the way but we are not getting to all of the groups uh, around the country uh, there are some groups that we're not trying hard enough to reach okay. so we'll be able to get information like that. You mentioned the 24-hour helpline there, Noli. Maybe we'd uh, finish up uh, by giving that number to people uh, if anybody uh, is uh, upset by something that has happened to them. uh, There's somebody there to talk to. So the, and that number, Michael, as you regularly give out and it is great, it's 1-800-77-88-88. Okay. And you can note one eight hundred seventy seven eighty eight eighty eight. If you Google to uh, rape crisis helpline, it'll pop up immediately. All right. Yeah. And there's a web chat, I think, on your website uh, and, as well. Yeah, there's a web chat there. Yeah. And if somebody, if English isn't their first language, we have an interpretation service that we can hook people into to have a three-way conversation with a, a trusted interpreter. Okay. It's an invaluable trusted professional service. It's free to call. It's open 24 hours a day. one eight hundred seventy seven eighty eight. 88. Nolene, thanks as always for joining us. Thank this you, morning. Thank you indeed. Nolene Blackwell, CEO of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. 
Now, you've uh, heard people say nobody understands uh, the way I feel and uh, maybe they should walk in my shoes. A young man uh, said uh, that 10 years ago in St. Patrick's and uh, as a result of that, uh, the Walk in My Shoes campaign began uh, and has been running as an information campaign uh, ever since. Let's speak uh, to CEO Paul Gilligan, who's on the line. A very good morning to you, Paul, and thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. In line with Walk in My Shoes, you have a a new campaign this year, the 10 Days of Whimsmas. Yeah, so we're celebrating 10 years, as you've said, and that's fantastic. So we felt focus on the idea of 10 10 days of Christmas, 10 years of of operations. And so each day we're going to go back over a particular team that we would have promoted over the last 10 years, focused on promoting mental health, uh, building mental health awareness, and of course the the key message of of combating stigma. So uh, if you take, for example, the Mind Your Selfie campaign, I think you, you did a lot of coverage of that. The idea of, you know, taking a selfie, the idea of focusing on yourself and your own uh, emotions. We're focusing on that on Tuesday. Uh, we've got a lot of stuff for schools because we do a lot of stuff for schools through the WIMS campaign. So we have a, a competition of sco- uh, among schools called Mission Possible. Uh, we have a lot of resources on our website for schools. So the idea really is, is to get people focused on their mental health coming up to Christmas when, when it can be a time of, of stress it can be a time of family conflict and really we're, we're getting people to prepare themselves for that in a very positive way. And focus on young people, is it? I see that uh, there's a lot of social media activity and indeed you've got an endorsement from a, a big supporter uh, of uh, this campaign, Adam Clayton of U2. Yeah, we've been really lucky. Um, we've got a lot of good, really good ambassadors, uh, people who, you know, people who are in the public eye who prepare to talk about mental health, promote mental health. Adam Clayton has been a long-term supporter. He's been fantastic and he's done an awful lot of work for us. We've blown a Tracy. We've lots of other people. We had um, uh, Hosier involved at one stage. So, you know, it's fantastic when people who are in the public eye prepared to talk about their mental health because that gives us all permission to talk about our mental health which is the first part of being able to manage uh, our emotions and manage our, 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 our difficulties it's, it's also the first step in terms of just being able to open up and talk to somebody somebody close that we can get support from so yeah. we do appreciate the support of the ambassadors and Adam's been fantastic for us Would I be right in thinking that uh, if you're feeling down uh, that it's all the worse around this time of year because of all of uh, the joy and festivities that seem to be around you. Yeah, I mean, Christmas is a fantastic time, but there's an expectation that you're going to be, uh, you know, be social, uh, be upbeat, um, enjoying yourself. And so also there's sometimes an expectation that other people are doing this and you're not. So I think I think really important coming to Christmas with an expectation that says you're going to enjoy it as much as you can. Second, you're going to manage your mental health. So, so focusing on relaxation, etc. Not, not, not letting your expectations or your belief systems get out of control in terms mm. of what other people are doing or what, or what you think should be doing. And, and I think the other thing is controlling the amount of alcohol we consume over Christmas is really important because there is a social pressure to engage in drinking. Mm. I think if, if we're careful, that can really help our Christmas. 
Okay, and the 12 days of whims must start today uh, and over the 10 days you'll be giving out uh, different messages, uh, I'm sure. What what type of messages uh, will people get if they sign up to this campaign, if they follow the campaign? Yeah, so, so, we're, so we're drawing off all the things we did over the last 10 years. So on Tuesday, we, 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 uh, tomorrow we have Mind Your Selfie, which is, which is great fun. Mm. And it's about, you know, the idea of taking a selfie, uh, focusing on yourself, on your own emotions. Wednesday, we're, we're focused on school resources because we have a, a, a huge campaign focused on the idea of uh, mentally, mentally healthy schools. And I just want to say schools in Ireland have been fantastic. And if you compare them across Europe, they really have done an incredible job in terms of promoting mental health and mental health awareness. Mm. On Thursday, we're going to be focused on some of the interviews and some of the podcasts that we did as part of Wins Live. We're also, on Saturday, we've, we're, we're promoting Funky Shoe Day, another great initiative of WIMS where we get people to wear uh, 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 fun shoes. And again, again, that idea focused on enjoying yourself, but also focus on your mental health. Mm. And then on Sunday, we're looking at Mission Possible, which is, again, the schools. And lastly, on Monday, the Frame of Mind competition, which uh, provided us with a lot of really strong film content, which we're asking people to look at on our website, which really uh, promotes mental health and mental health awareness. Very good. And it really is a a way of trying to break down barriers uh, between... Uh, people who have problems and haven't come forward to reach out to them and hope that they will engage with you. Uh, we'll have to leave it there for the moment though, Paul. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us. I'm sure people will follow the 10 Days of Wimsmith online. That's CEO of St. Patrick's Mental Health Services, Paul Gilligan. And that's our programme for today. Maggie McGuire Research, Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael Godwilling. We'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.